Hello and welcome to the International Intrigue Audio Newsletter. This is where we read to our two main stories so that you can listen to them and go about your busy days. We've got a special edition for you this week that we're calling Oceans, the cause of and solution to all of life's problems. Now that's a little bit tongue in cheek, but you'll see why. Because the first story is called How the Next World War Could Start, the Freedom of Navigation Under International Maritime Law. And our second story is called How the Next World War Could Be Avoided. Is deep sea mining the answer to our rare earth problems? We think it's a great addition and we know you'll enjoy it. So without further ado, on to the first story. Freedom of Navigation Under International Maritime Law A lawyer is a person who writes a 10,000-word document and calls it a brief. Franz Kafka Yeah, very droll, Franz. The cost of turning 10,000 words into about 800 is that there will be omissions from and exceptions to what I write below. It's a price worth paying, though, I'm sure you'll agree. The New York Times headlines five years ago today. One. David Cameron gets hustled out of Downing Street, but the cat stays. Two, new evidence on Van Gogh's ear continues debate on the painter's mental state. And three, too old for sex? Not at this nursing home. Ah, simpler times. But also, this. And here we've linked to a tweet from Secretary of State Antony Blinken, which says, Five years ago today, the Philippines scored an important victory for the rule of the law in the South China Sea. And I literally just realized that he had a typo in there. Anyway, the United States stands by its allies and partners in defending their maritime rights and standing up for the freedom of the seas. So he tweeted that on July the 12th, 2021. But Tony, what is freedom of the seas? Freedom of navigation of the seas is about a 500-year-old concept that ships are free to go almost wherever they please without harassment. It's an early example of game theory in international relations. If your nation could plunder my ships at sea, and my nation yours, then naval strategy would quickly become a race to the bottom of the ocean. So the freedom of navigation concept developed organically and became what's known as customary international law. AKA, the world's been doing it this way for ages, so don't be a dick. Freedom of navigation became explicit international law under the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea, or UNCLOS for short, in 1982. Now here are a few key definitions from UNCLOS. Territorial waters. Now that's the area of the ocean up to 12 nautical miles off the coast. This is considered the territory of the coastal state. The exclusive economic zone, or the EEZ, the area up to 200 nautical miles from the coastline. The coastal state has rights to economically exploit this area, but it isn't considered territory. And the high seas, the ocean that lies beyond 200 nautical miles from a coastal state and thus belongs to the Kraken. Innocent Passage, an integral part of freedom of navigation. Innocent Passage is the right of a ship to sail almost wherever its captain directs, including through territorial waters. A coastal state may not harass, stop, or exclude a ship from any waters. 
To qualify, the ship's journey must be continuous and expeditious, which is lawyer talk for don't loiter, and innocent. And here we quote from Article 19 of UNCLOS, which says, Passage is innocent so long as it is not prejudicial to the peace, good order, or security of the coastal state. And here's a random anecdote. Uh, In 2014, I attended a conference at the U.S. Naval War College in Rhode Island. The U.S. was trying to build international support for a right to interdict ships on the high seas. In plain English, that just means that the U.S. officials wanted uh, the right to stop and frisk North Korean ships that were suspected of carrying drugs and weapons. Oh, by the way, did I mention that the U.S. is one of three countries that hasn't ratified UNCLOS? The hotspots of not-so-innocent passage. Well, we'll start with the big one, the South China Sea. There are two complex issues at work here. Firstly, China claims a frankly absurd amount of the South China Sea as its territorial waters under what it calls the Nine Dash Line. Part historical fiction, part entirely fiction, China's claims were rejected by the Permanent Court of Arbitration in 2016, and we can see Secretary Blinken's tweet earlier. China requires ships to apply for permission to sail through the South China Sea, which is also contrary to international law. And here we've included a map of the Nine Dash Line. Uh, And yes, it is really called the Nine Dash Line because the map China submitted to the UN was drawn with nine dashes. Uh, I recommend checking out the newsletter to see that map. It is quite something. So that's why you might have heard about naval task forces sailing through the South China Sea on what navies call Freedom of Navigation Operations, or FONOPS. FONOPS are a way for other countries to tell China, one, that we don't accept your territorial claim to the Nine Dash Line, and two, even if we did, we don't accept that we have to apply for permission to sail through the South China Sea. Other hotspots uh, that involve freedom of navigation issues are Crimea, Recently, a sodden pile of top-secret documents was found at a bus stop outside London. The documents revealed details of the British warship HMS Defender's innocent passage within 12 nautical miles of Crimea on the 23rd of June. Whether this was Ukrainian or Russian territorial waters is another dispute entirely. And of course, the Arabian Peninsula, a timeless classic. The natural choke points in the Persian Gulf and the Gulf of Aden have led to countless freedom of navigation skirmishes. And I'm not sure if it's just because I've said the word golf so many times today, but it is such a weird word. So why do navies insist on measuring their ships? Well, if you have a sibling, did you ever divide a room into two and banish each other to your own sides? How long did it take one of you to stick a toe over the line just to see what happened? And if the other sibling reacted violently, a more persuasive boundary was then established. But if that sibling ignored the transgression, the territorial division of the room soon wasn't worth the chalk line that demarcated it in the first place. And congratulations, you now completely understand the dynamics of maritime-based geopolitical conflict. But for the sticklers among you, here's a more profesh answer to the above question. One, it's to reassert a legal position. Courts will often decide territorial claims based on how countries have acted over time. Have they always acted consistently with the position they are now claiming, or is this an entirely new territorial claim? Countries like to conduct FONOPs to show force and build a narrative. When the HMS Defender transited Crimea last month, there were several journalists on board. Those journalists dutifully snapped pictures of Russian warplanes and reported that Russia responded aggressively. 
Just remember, the UK government would like you to know that Russia is very scary. And lastly, FONOPS help gauge an adversary's reaction. A country's reaction to FONOPS can tell you something about the chain of command, response times, intelligence capabilities, and perhaps even the psychology of its leadership. Geopolitical theatre. The law of the sea provides the most predictable and safe framework for diplomatic and military skirmishes. I certainly don't mean that FONOPS aren't dangerous, but the relative clarity of international maritime law, the slow pace of warships, and the distance from civilian centres all mean that if you're going to play these military measuring games, it's best to do it at sea. That is, of course, a double-edged cutlass. Because these contested bodies of water are skirmish destinations of choice, they are also more likely to be the scene of a tragic accident, or even worse, the start of a war. In fact, if I were a betting man, and I am, I'd wager that the next major world conflict will kick off in the South China Sea. Deep Sea Mining, a race to the bottom. This week, I mine the depths of my acrylic humour to bring you this rare gem on the current geopolitics of deep sea mining. Okay, sorry, I'll stop with the silly puns before they get out of sand. In case you missed it, Nauru, a small Pacific island state, recently nabbed global headlines. Now, if you haven't heard of Nauru, here are two things you need to know. The first is that the 21 square kilometre island is coated in a thick layer of guano, aka migratory bird poop that makes for top shelf fertiliser. Second is that its main industry, so to speak, is hosting Australia's most notorious offshore immigration detention facility. But this week, Nauru's president Lionel Anjamir announced to the United Nations that Nauru, in partnership with mining company The Metals Company, planned to start deep sea mining to extract precious metals from its surrounding seabed. This announcement is important because it gives the United Nations only two years to finalise deep sea mining regulations before Nauru breaks water. Interestingly, two years on planet international law world is roughly equivalent to about 12 Earth seconds, not enough time to achieve anything. Nauru's announcement triggered a tsunami, sorry, last one, of international reactions, including from neighbouring Pacific states, the EU, civil society, multinational corporations, stock markets, and, well, most importantly, living treasure Sir David Attenborough himself. The Wild Pacific, the gold rush of our times. What is deep sea mining? Deep sea mining is the extraction of mineral deposits from the ocean's floor from depths of 200 metres or more. Around 65% of the Earth's total surface qualifies as deep sea ocean. Deep sea mining only became a thing in the 1960s when geologist John Moreau Jr. wrote of the ocean bed's supposed limitless abundance of precious metals, such as copper, cobalt and nickel, aka the stuff that powers our high-tech smartphone and electric vehicle batteries. These delicious minerals come primarily from the clarion clipperton zone, or the CCZ, a deep water plain which extends across 1.7 million miles of ocean floor between Hawaii and Mexico. The CCZ is about 7,300 miles across, which is about 1.6 times the distance from New York to LA. And the white areas that we see in the picture in our newsletter are currently being explored for international mining. Why isn't deep sea mining already a thing? 
Until recently, technological challenges and low metal prices gave little incentive for anyone to pursue deep-sea mining. But dwindling mineral deposits on land and our thirst for metals have reinvigorated a desire to dig at the bottom of the ocean. This is especially the case for Pacific Island states hunting for alternative sources of income after COVID-19 battered their tourism-reliant economies. Who's in charge? Wait, there is someone in charge, right? Not someone, but rather 167 countries are in charge. The United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea, aka John's First Love, set up the International Seabed Authority, or ISA, to regulate deep sea mining in 1994. So far, the ISA has granted around 30 deep-sea exploration contracts to private companies, which allow these companies to prospect for minerals on the seafloor. Also, the ISA is headquartered in Jamaica, which might explain why I've just received a text from John saying that he's seriously considering other options. Deep-sea mining, the for and the against. The for. Not all mining equals death for the earth. Many arguments for deep-sea mining go something as follows. Deep-sea mining is less damaging than land mining, for example, on freshwater ecosystems, indigenous peoples, carbon-storing forests, and flora and fauna. And the new technologies are supposedly less intrusive and vacuum up the seabed rather than drill into it. Also, compared to land deposits, deposits found in the deep sea are richer and better in quality. This creates an overall more carbon-efficient production process with reduced energy consumption. And apparently, there's enough to fuel a global fleet of Teslas down there. Elon no doubt will be frothing at this. And remember the ISA? Well, they will, in theory, distribute funds from deep sea mining to emerging economies because the deep sea is a common heritage of mankind under international law. And deep sea mining gives cash strapped Pacific Island states like Nauru more control over their economic destinies. And finally, those who support deep sea mining argue that the current status quo for traditional precious metals mining is not sufficient or sustainable. Deep sea mining presents a viable long-term alternative. And now to the arguments against. Opponents of deep sea mining say we're all John Snows and we know nothing. We've explored even less of the ocean than we have space. And unlike the mines that are on land, there's very little monitoring and inspection for deep sea mines, which means operations may not be held to a higher standard. The lack of studies done on environmental impacts of deep-sea mining means there may be irreversible damage done to Earth's primary ecosystem. And the supposedly less invasive technologies for deep-sea mining still cause enormous disruption to marine life ecosystems, for example by stirring up seabed sediment, noise pollution and causing increased water temperature. Finally, like other UN bodies, the ISA is political and has arguably conflicting mandate of both facilitating deep-sea mining and protecting the deep-sea environment. Zoom out. The fact is, scientists simply don't agree on whether deep-sea mining is a good or bad idea. That uncertainty means that politicians, companies and environmental groups can plausibly argue either side of the issue depending on their interests. Just last month, the European Parliament called for a moratorium on deep-sea mining until we know more about the ecosystem. Yet companies like BMW and Volvo backed the call despite precious metals being integral to their plans to build more electric vehicles. Perhaps we've reached a stage where the potential future environmental harm is more important to corporations than profit. Or perhaps they know something we don't. Another week down. We hope you enjoyed this week's content. 
we're pretty proud of it. We think it's a fascinating topic and given that I was a former international maritime lawyer and Helen was also an international lawyer, we hope we were able to bring some different and unique insights. As always, get in touch with us in the normal ways by responding to the email or tweeting us at intintrigue, that's at intintrigue. And you can always leave us a review and give us five stars if you like what we're trying to do. Thank you very much for listening and until next week, 